Uh, this is a great story in John chapter 9. One of my favorite, I only have about 20 in the New Testament. The phrase that's arrested me all week is this phrase, uh, but he kept on saying, I am the man. He kept saying, I am that man. So far as we know, the man wasn't looking for Jesus. He wasn't looking for a miracle. He didn't, he couldn't look for anything. He was blind. So one day as he sits there, like he always sits with a little can begging money, he hears two voices talking over the top of him. And one of them says, Rabbi, which one sinned, this guy or his parents? He's used to this. The prejudice in that day is that if there's something wrong with you, if there's a physical deformity, it's, it's evidence that there's something wrong with you or your sin's been passed down through the generation. And just before he can shut himself off to it, he hears another voice of someone say, neither one is sin. This man is blind so that the glory of God can be revealed. Then he hears the voice say, we must work the works of him who sent me as long as it is day, for the time is coming when no one can work. He's never heard anything like this before, and then the next thing he knows, he feels something wet on his eyes. The one who was talking a moment ago has spit onto the ground and he started to make mud from the saliva and he starts to rub it on the man's eyes. Undoubtedly, he must have tried to stop it for a second and tried to touch it. And before he can get it off, he hears the voice say, now go wash in the pool of Shaloa or Siloam. The word means scent. Though a man doesn't even know where the pool of Siloam is. Some people say it's more than, more than a good walk away from the place where Jesus met him. So he must have turned to somebody next to him and asked if they could lead him into the pool so he could wash. He doesn't even know this guy who just told him to wash. Doesn't know who it is. Doesn't know why he did it. But without even thinking about it, he just does what the voice told him to do. By the time he gets into the and he starts to wash the water over his face. He opens his eyes again, and for the first time in his life, he sees. He's ecstatic. He comes back to his friends, and by this time, the voices that were talking over his head that he couldn't see, they're long gone. Verse 12 says, when one of them said, well, where is this man? He said, I don't know. So apparently, he's long gone. And his neighbors are already having an argument. And one of them says, wait a second, aren't, aren't you the guy that used to sit and beg by the day? And some of them are saying, yeah, that's the guy. He's the guy. And other ones are saying, no, no, it just looks like him. But it's not the same guy. But the man himself kept saying, no, I am that man. I am that man. In the original language, it's continual. It, he didn't say it once. 
they kept arguing and he kept saying, no, I am that guy, I am that guy. And it's such a bold, simple, innocent, uncomplicated, personal thing to say, but it's so compelling. What do you say in defense of this? You keep saying, no, this isn't what it, and he keeps saying, yes, it is. I am that guy. I am that man. I grew up in the Wesleyan church, and the Wesleyans are evangelicals. And what that means, among other things, is that uh, from all of our downsides, evangelicals do some things really well. I'm proud of these things. One of those is that we emphasize the Word of God. Not every, you might need to, not every Christian denomination does this, but evangelicals tend to emphasize the importance of the Word of God. So our sermons are always based, our classes are always based on the, we believe that the Word of God is the final authority. It's the portal through which God speaks to all humanity. It's the standard, it's the qualifier, it's the argument settler. We may interpret it differently, but it's always it we're interpreting and not something else. We're good at that. We emphasize the new birth that a person can have a conversion experience where their whole life has been transformed. Sometimes we call it born again. Sometimes we say it's an awakening. But we believe you're not just born going to heaven. You need to meet God personally. You as an individual somewhere along the way. And when it's genuine, God will transform and rewire your entire life. You're sick of hearing me say it. I'm sorry, you gotta say it again. He will change your actions and your reactions and your desires and your nature and your instincts and everything about you. Maybe all at once or maybe over a long time, but God has the power to change a person's life and we won't stop talking about that. Another thing that we do really well is evangelize. Not every denomination or church does this. We believe that if God has changed our life, he can change yours. And so we tell our neighbors and our friends, we even tell people in other countries, we believe in this thing called global evangelism. We go to every country in the world and try to preach the gospel and convince people that Jesus Christ can change their life by the power of God. However, our love for evangelism has had uh, certain downsides. <laughs> we haven't always done this well in the evangelical church. When I, was, uh, when I was a boy, I don't mean a young man, I mean a boy. I mean at teen camp. Uh, they put me on a bus and drove me into town with a stack of tracks and asked me with some friends to knock on doors and say, if you died tonight, do you, this is a cold call. 
I'm a teenager, doggone it. Can't we just ride horses or dirt bikes or something? Don't you have a pool anywhere around here? They say, no, we're going to evangelize the whole city for teen camp. Holy cow. Do you have the assurance that you would go to heaven? (laughs) They would come and say, son, if you don't get off my porch, you're going to die tonight. We've done things like this. We have believed so much in getting everybody saved that we tried to get them saved as fast as we could. We've taken an entire year's worth of spiritual progress and compressed it into a simple plan. We've taken what is incredibly deep and mysterious. It's a pageant of salvation of God breaking into the world and writing everything from the individual to the structures to the cosmos itself. And we have reduced that to a plan of salvation that just promises the forgiveness of sins. We wanted so much more than this, but we were so aggressive. We somehow fell into ruts and slogans in plans that could win as many people as possible. And so, because we don't want to be like that, people like me have tended to steer away from evangelism. What, what, what I have found, um, as a rule of thumb, is that the more educated a person becomes, the less evangelistic they become. There are exceptions to this, but I think um, we see so many downsides to all of the cheesy bumper stickers that the moment somebody mentions evangelism, we just think, oh no, I'm not gonna be like that guy. So what we've tended to do is to just distance ourselves from all of this. And I want to say to the guy in the story as he starts talking, dude, do you have any idea what you look like right now? Do you have any idea the firepower that is in that room? You should stop talking right now. They will take you apart. But he just keeps saying, I am the guy. So if my generation has tended to look at all of the excess and back away and say, I want nothing to do with that. These people are too sure of themselves. The next generation has come along And they've taken the opposite side. They've grown up in a culture that is so diverse that they have valued tolerance over discernment. So every conversation they have has not just multiple personalities, entire different religions at the table. And the last thing they want is to be labeled as one of those extremists. 
They've seen what radical beliefs can do to the world, and they're afraid of radical beliefs. And so, as Vance Havner said, they're so afraid of wildfire, they've decided to have no fire at all. In his book, Good Faith, David Kinnaman and Gabe Lyons say that in today's America, countercultural faithfulness is often perceived as a form of radicalism. So that if you practice your faith in ways consistent with the Christian church for 2,000 years, today you're labeled an extremist. So they surveyed thousands of people outside of the church and they found out that 60% of all adults in the U.S. believe that if you go out and you share your faith with someone else and try to get them to believe your religion, it's a form of extremism. If you say that you are against same-sex marriage, 52% more than half say that's extremism. If you say that you were willing to leave a good-paying job and to become a missionary somewhere in the world, 42% more than a third say that's a form of extremism. Do you see what I mean? These are historically Christian, Christian ideas. But we live in such a volatile, fragile society that we've become afraid to say these things. In their book, they say, as a culture, we are trying to figure out how to make sense of widening religious and ideological differences we experience every day. And so by default, the mushy middle seems to be winning. Many people are gravitating to a contrived, centrist position that says everything will be okay if none of us holds too tightly to any particular belief. Ironically, this contrived center is itself a belief. And it has become an ideology as people grip it more and more tightly and call people that are tugging on the ends extremists. And so the, the temptation today, if my generation was too sure of themselves, this generation is not sure enough. And they've learned to watch what they say. And so they look at this guy in John chapter 9 who is talking about this miracle in his life and they want to say, you have no idea what you're saying. The room is filled with other religious beliefs. Do you know how offensive and intolerant you sound? There are people who will take your faith apart. The media is just outside the door and they're gonna misquote you. And it's as if the guy just doesn't care. He just keeps saying, I am that man. So they haul him in front of the Pharisees because they should know. They know everything. Ask them. 
And you find out in verse 14 that by the time he gets in to see the Pharisees, they're already ticked off because the miracle happened on the Sabbath. <laughs> oh, I love this part. When Jesus heals on, on the Sabbath, oh man, he completely destroys the Pharisees' belief because they don't know what the Sabbath means. And so they bring the guy in there and they just said, what happened to you? He said, this guy put mud on my eyes, told me to wash in the pool. I washed and I came back seeing. And immediately the Pharisees start arguing amongst themselves. Is he a good guy, bad guy, sinner, saint? What is he? And all of a sudden in the middle of the argument, one of them turns to the guy himself and says, wait a minute, you're the guy he touched. Who do you say he is? <laughs> and the guy just goes, he's a prophet. Verse 17, the man's a prophet. Well, that's not what they want to hear, so they say, get out of here. And they go get his parents. They bring his parents in. And they say, we have two questions. First, is this your son or not? Second, if it is your son, what happened? Parents just go, well, it's our son. He was blind from the day he was born. And what happened? I have no idea. You want to know that? You ask him. He's of age. He'll talk for himself. You find out later that the parents are afraid of the Jews. Translated. His mom and dad just threw him under the bus. So they say, fine. And they go get the guy, and they bring him back in front of the Pharisees for the second time. They say, son, give glory to God. That's translated, be honest with us now. What happened to you? We know that this man is a sinner. <laughs> the guy just, it's like the guy has just pulled the pin on a hand grenade and rolled it in front of the religious leaders. He just stands there and just goes, I don't know if he's a sinner or not. All I know is once I was blind and now I can see. Translated, deal with it. <laughs> when the evidence is there, there is nothing you can say. There's the evidence. So then they say, no, tell us what happened. And the man says, look, I've already told you. Do you want to hear? <laughs> right in the middle of his speech, he just goes, wait a minute. Do you guys want to be his disciples too? <laughs> it's like, oh, oh, don't say that. And the moment they say it, they just go off on him. They say, how dare you to lecture us? You were steeped in sin from birth. How do you know that? You didn't even know his parents. How do you know what he is? Well, you were born blind. We have a structure. We have this thing figured out. We know how religion works. We know where the boundaries are. We know who the right people are and who the wrong people are. And you have one of the marks. So don't sit there and lecture us about who we are. We know who you are. Note to self. 
It is the nature of religion to constrict its adherents until it squeezes the life out of them. Religion, don't say, not our, yeah, your religion. Mine too. By its nature, defines. It builds structures and systems of belief. And by doing this, it sometimes inadvertently creates borders or boundaries. And when God does something that is outside of the boundary that religion has considered safe or explainable, it gets afraid and sometimes it gets defensive. And as I was meditating on the text this week, I just thought, no, I prayed, God, I know that we have in college church people, some of you have had encounters with Jesus Christ and you came to a church like ours that is highly structured and systematic and very thoughtful and sometimes thought-provoking and I, I don't want you to get the life squeezed out of you. You understand, <laughs> some of us, <laughs> we're obsessive, man, about the way things work. I don't want you to be stifled by our structure or by our systems. If God is doing a miracle in your life, let him do the miracle. Because if we're not careful, what will happen is we'll start leading God instead of following him. Tell him what you can do. Anything outside that, you didn't do it. So they curse the man and they basically throw him out of the synagogue. Jesus finds him a day or two later, goes looking for him again. Ah. And he says to the man, do you believe in the Son of Man? And the guy, he doesn't say, um, prove him, prove it to me. All the guy says is, tell me who he is so I can believe. Jesus says, you're seeing him now. The one speaking to you is him. Then the guy says, Lord, I believe. And he falls down to worship. I have a, um, I have a, a passion for our church, you guys, that um, we need to become more evangelistic than we are. Some of you, um, like me, you grew up seeing it abused with extremes and you've decided not to become any part of that. But please, reconsider. It isn't evangelism that you're against. It's that form of evangelism that you're against. So you don't have to do that. But you have to evangelize. You 
have to say, I am that man. Others of you have grown up in an age of tolerance, and you're afraid how you'll come across. And so you've been taught, even when God has done something to you that is profound, to privatize it almost immediately and hold on to it and not to say anything because you don't want to impose your beliefs on somebody else. May I encourage you, you're going to have to take a chance on this. You don't have to go in guns blazing. But you do have to go in and talk about what God has done in your life. He told us to share with the world what he's done in our lives. So we have a mission in our church, college church. And the mission is we exist to make more and better disciples. But here's our problem. We're good at making better ones, not that good at making more. But has it occurred to you, as it has me, that until we are making more disciples, the better ones ain't that good. Because there's more to discipleship than living private, pious lives. Disciples by nature reproduce. Listen, anything alive reproduces. So we can talk about how to do it, but we can't talk about whether we should do it or not. Some of you, like me, are, intro are introverts, which means you can get into public and you can flip a switch, like right now, and you can put a public persona on. It's not fake. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. But as soon as the moment is over, you go to that back corner, you flip that switch, and you're like, oh, man. So when I say that we need to become more evangelistic, you're like, there is no stinking way I am going to do that. I don't have it in me. So what I did was I came up with an introvert's guide to evangelism. From John chapter 9. So if you don't like to talk to people, you don't want to be one of those. <laughs> Here's a few simple rules that come straight from John chapter 9. Here's the first one. Make it personal. Make it personal. Look at the story again. The man has a bad argument. But he has a great testimony. He does not even know who Jesus is. Man, I want to jump in and coach the guy. And just say, no, don't say that. No, tell him now. He doesn't even have any idea about what the arguments are. He just knows that once he was blind and now he can see. Let me translate that. He is not that far removed from the moment he was at his worst and Christ found him. Listen, the longer you stay in the church, the more insulated you become from your own need. But, but the problem is, your need is the seed of your testimony. What has happened to evangelism in my lifetime is, the whole thing has shifted from my testimony to my argument. 
So I begin sharing Jesus with an agenda. Anyone with an agenda in a postmodern age, they, they smell that, man. But there is power in just going into a conversation and telling people what happened to you. So you don't have to be brilliant. You don't have to have a big theological picture. You don't even have to know the right answers. You just got to know what happened to you. Because the most powerful witness is a testimony, not an argument. An argument is built to persuade. A testimony is simply built to report. And so an argument has failed if it doesn't convince the other person. A testimony never fails as long as it's truthful with the details. That's it. Boy, this takes the pressure off. I don't have to go in and try and convince somebody how to be a Christian or move them to this final point where we're going to pray today. And then we don't have to do that. Just tell people what happened to you. So I read the story and I, I, I traced the questions as they started to unfold. And the first question that they asked them was, what happened to you? Then the second question was, who did this? And what do you say about him? And then the third question was, how did he do it? And the thought occurred to me, we can actually design our testimonies by just answering those three questions. What did he do to you? Go back at a time when you were most vulnerable, when you were at the bottom and there was no way out. Do you still remember that time? And what did he do for you? And who is he? And what do you say about him? What's his name? What's his nature? What's he like? And how did he do it? Did he do it through a body? Did he do it through a church? Did he do it through a person? Did he do it through the word? How did he do it? Tell us the story. Do you realize by just answering the questions the guy answered? <laughs> it's like the testimony. It just rolls out in front of us. Now, you got to have the courage to say it. But believe me, church, you have a testimony. Here's the other rule. You don't have to start the conversation. But you do have to stand your ground. So I'm reading the story again. And, and I noticed that the guy never starts the conversation, ever. He lets them ask questions. And then he just answers the question. See it? So you don't have to knock on doors. You don't have to go to the store and say, how can I hoodwink this person into a salvation experience? Before you push the cash register, you're saved. Voila. You don't have to do that. I just have to listen to the conversation. And as questions start to touch the 
area of what God has done in my life, I have to be courageous. I have to be loyal enough to say it. But you got to stay in your lane. Listen, don't get hoodwinked into talking about your convictions. Some of us have shot our testimonies over positions on politics, economics, and so forth. You don't have to talk politics. You don't have to talk about where you stand on gay marriage. Not here, not now. This is an evangelistic moment. This is not a colloquium on evangelical ideas. Stay in your lane and talk about what he did for you. You still with me? Last. You don't have to be eloquent. But you do have to be current. problem with telling our testimony is it gets old and dry after we've told it a few times. So you need to be able to say, I ran into Jesus just the other day. And you know what he said? He said, do you believe in the Son of Man? And I realized in that moment, I was still a little blind. And I said, Lord, just tell me who he is and I will believe. And he said, you're seeing him. The one speaking to you is he. And I fell at his feet. And went. Do you think the guy had a hard time talking about his encounter after he got off of his face in front of Jesus? I think if we have ongoing encounters with Christ in the word, we have something to say. Just last, I'm working through John in my, uh, in my time alone with God. And just, just, uh, just about a week ago, I finished it. And I was in John uh, uh, 20. Uh, and and I, f- I was just reading it for myself. And all of a sudden, I, there was Christ. And I, and, and I was find myself saying, man, I, I never saw this, Lord. I never saw this, the reality, the truth of this. It's real. It's alive. It makes so much sense. That was about six o'clock in the morning. All of a sudden, my wife got up. We were on break. She got up and she says, well, what do you, what do you want to do today? I said, preach, man. That's what I'm going to do. And she said, what? I said, listen to this. Listen to this. And I just said, man, I was just reading this. And Lord, this is incredible. Isn't that something? She goes, sort of sounds like you're preaching right now. <laughs> I said, I know. I'm sorry. But I'm almost done. Hang on a second. And I kept going. Well, later that day, somebody called me, and they were doing an interview, like on the phone. This is going to be live, blah, blah, blah. And they were asking a bunch of questions that had nothing to do with John 20. And I went, well, this doesn't have anything to do with what you're asking. But man, I was just reading this morning. This is, I'm telling you again, as an introvert, man, that is not my nature. It is to yes ma'am, no ma'am, and get out of the interview. But when you have a fresh encounter with God in the Word, you have something to say. See, our problem is not that we don't have answers. It's that we don't have testimonies. And the reason we don't have testimonies is there hasn't been an encounter. And the reason there's not been an encounter is because there hasn't been a brokenness. There hasn't been a need, a lostness, a blindness. 
But if you have the nerve to say, I am blind. I have been in this church a long time. I've been a Christian all my life. I'm an ordained minister. I'm a professor, dadgummit. But I still can't see it. If you can say that, you have the gall to say that in front of him. He will open your eyes. Do you have the nerve? Do you have the nerve to say, oh Lord, am I blind too?